Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, thank you for joining us again for episode 51 of Scuttlebutt. I am Vic. I'm here with William. Howdy. And uh, we're honored to welcome Nicholas Reynolds, author, former Marine, former CIA. Uh, sir, thank you so much for coming down to be with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. This is really great. So you've got, and, and we'll dig, dig into some of the uh, specifics of um, your career and things, but I mean, just to hit some of the wave tops. So uh, Marine, uh, CIA analyst, is that the right title uh, or no, caseworker? Actually, it was operations officer. Operations officer. Yeah. That sounds awesome. We'll definitely want to unpack that. And then director of CIA museum. I wish I was the historian for the CIA Museum, which is also a great job. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. you really can't yeah. do much without knowing the history right. of it. And so that leads you to this book that we want to talk about today, Need to Know World War II and the Rise of the American Intelligence. So this is, uh, this is really great. Thank you again for coming on. You bet. Um, so, yeah, we, we talked a little bit in the pre-show um, but yeah, if you could just could we talk a little bit about your career and why? I guess sort of give us the context behind this book. You've written a few others. You know, I have a couple, a couple three uh, Marine Corps history books. Uh, I did official history for the Marine Corps for a while. Uh, so I mean, if you start at the beginning, I've been a World War II buff ever since I could read. So uh, my parents were in World War II. They had. Uh, pretty interesting experiences during the war. So this is what you heard at the dinner table. It's like, you know, this is what it was like to be in London when it was being bombed. My mother was in Budapest during the siege of Budapest, which is a big fight between the Russians and the Germans in uh, late 1944, early 45. So I always wondered kind of like what it was like. Uh, mm -hmm. And that I had this big curiosity about the war. Uh, I studied the war in uh, school. I was a history major. Um, <clears throat> I wrote a book about the German resistance to Hitler, and then uh, you know you 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 got to put bread on the table, and uh, being a historian and uh, writing obscure books is not always a great way to do that. <laughs> so um, I had a uh, an, I had a career uh, with the Marine Corps, uh, most uh, mix of active and reserves, about five years total active duty, the rest of it reserves. Marine Corps has a wonderful little history group. Uh, here in Quantico, it's across the street now. It used to be down in the Navy Yard. Uh, I was member of the Field History Detachment, eventually becoming the OIC, and that that's that was like running a news bureau. We went uh, to operations overseas. We collected information. We came back. We wrote it up. Sometimes it became a book. Sometimes it just went into the archives. And uh, then at the CIA, I was uh, trained operations officer but really a generalist. I worked overseas. I worked at home. And at the end of my career, I spent five years at the CIA Museum. Uh, I like to say I have two, had two of the best niche jobs in the U.S. government, OIC of field history for the Marine Corps and um, historian for the best museum you never saw, which sadly is behind the gate uh, in uh, in Langley, so you can't go unless you have an invitation. Whereas here in the Marine Corps, as we all know, the museum is outside the gate, yep. so you just swing off 95 and you're there. Yeah, you just follow the uh, artistic rendering of the flag raising sure. of Evo, yeah. and there you are. So I, this is really fascinating to me. Um, on a previous episode, we've had um, combat artists who are no kidding, uniform-wearing, rank-wearing Marines who would do sketch art, paint art, um, f and are in many of the places you see museums and office spaces and things. How? What is the path to becoming a historian in the Marine Corps? So, uh, well, there's there's two. So the, in my day, I think it's still the same today. There were two sides to it. One were uh, GS or uniform. And uh, so you could you could be a, uh, an officer in the Marine Corps or uh, uh, enlisted, and you could be assigned to the uh, history, it was history and museums division in the Navy Yard, and, and there were a range of jobs you might you might be writing history, uh, you might be supervising exhibits or or actually putting exhibits up, 
uh, there, there was always, and then there were the, the reservists who would come for contingencies. And uh, what we tried to do in the, on the reserve side of the house was uh, cultivate talent. So we would look for somebody with a history background or a museum background or an art background. Uh, the artists actually worked for us for a while. I think, I'm, I'm not sure if they still do. But so we would have uh, field historians who could go out to the field and, you know, the dream team would be a field historian who would collect the, the words and then an artist who would sketch. And then we issued everybody a camera and you take pictures at the same time. So, you know, some of the guys that we hired and girls uh, would be um, great photographers. So I, I myself uh, deployed to uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. Uh, I had a, a few other deployments to the Caribbean and uh, various Haiti. Yep. I, wrote, I wrote a little mm -hmm. book about Haiti, A Skillful Show of Strength, uh, which was about the Marine Corps in Haiti. So, um, y you know, it's, it's like a lot of things. It's, it's kind of you, you're in the right position at the right time, and you happen to know somebody who's, who, who understands that you have the qualifications and the passion uh, for history, and then you get on to, the, you get on to one of these teams. Oh, that's really fascinating. That's so cool. And um, through the history division, then, I mean, is there an Ockfield sponsor for that? Or <laughs> is, like, like, is there a, a branch of PP and O? Or is it, like you said, it's just sort of cultivating talent? Well, well in, the, in the old days, we – so in the, I'm not quite as old as I sound, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> in uh, – it used to be the – we used to work for the commandant, directly for the commandant, so the – the head of History and Marine Corps Division was a special staff officer for the Commandant. Now, uh, History Division is part of Marine Corps University, and I believe the director of History Division is also the director of the Gray Research Center. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, that's amazing. And so you said that you've, you've always sort of leaned into World War II. What is it about that era, other than obviously – you know, anecdotally hearing it at the dinner table and things, but as you move through your academic life, your military life, it still resonated in it, some way. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is this is kind of the book that has it all for me because it's got World War II, it's got intelligence, um, it's got some great pictures, uh, if I say <laughs> so myself. Uh, World War II for, there's a number of ways to answer your question, but one one way to answer is, World War II is the gift that keeps on giving to historians. Uh, it seems like there's always one more World War II story that uh, is fresh and uh, that you can, that, that, that people, historians grasp, um, readers are waiting for. I was listening to a book talk the other day, and this was, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, I'm afraid, but the, the, the point of the book was it was uh, the author uh, had in her family a Jewish relative and a Nazi relative who no turned out kidding. to have been uh, one of the killers. And so the book is is about how you know the, the the pressures between these two sides of the family and getting the truth out. So uh, that's a little little bit of a sidebar here, but there's there's always something compelling about World War II. It's also it's also a very uh, it's a it's a war with a lot of human stories. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you could tell the story of World War II, the big blue arrow, you know, the Germans went here, the Allies counterattacked there. But if you look a little bit deeper, there are stories that we can relate to today that, um, you know, keep us going. It's a, I, the Civil War is a great subject, but it's, it's, a, it's at a further remove. Uh, and so, you see people and attitudes that you have to, you kind of have to stop and and think about. Well, why would they want to do that? You mm -hmm, know, why mm -hmm. are they thinking like this? Um, World War Two. I mean, that's that's not quite my lifetime, you know, but it's a few years out, and uh, I know people. Um, I've met people, uh, obviously my parents, but there's still veterans out there. So these are stories that are still part of. What is it? Faulkner said. He said the past. Past is not even past, um, you know. It's still it's still there with us. So that's uh, that. That's one way of explaining how enthusiastic I am about World War II. Well, you come at it from a different perspective than your average American 
uh, person who's interested because in I mean I have family from here in the Marines who served during World War Two, but you come from a, like a more European experience and more like European lens. Uh, you, like you said like you had um, like your mother was in occupied Nazi occupied and then Soviet occupied Europe. Your father was in London. How did that like shape your like initial perception of it? Like as opposed to, like the American exceptionalism view of it. Oh boy, that's a <laughs> that's a great question. So um, you know I. You don't, you don't always know how your your views are being shaped. They they just are, and and so uh, one of the things that that uh, comes out of this book and and other readings of the time is the the rift between. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a big gap in between Americans who want to get involved overseas and Americans who say, hey, we tried that once in World War I, and, and how did that work out for us mm -hmm. or, or the rest of the world? So let's not do it again. Uh, and um, so I've always been on the other side. I've been like, okay, you know, we're kind of Europe-centric. That's where our future is. That's, that's uh, where our values come from. And uh, so um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm exactly answering your question, but but it, it always seemed to make sense to me that we should look overseas. And so one of the interesting things about this book is how the United States gets from a place where, hey, we don't do intelligence. Yeah. Um, you know, the exceptionalism argument that it's, it's uh, um, that's only one argument, but it's an important one. And it's like, like um, you know, that's for other people to do. And we go from that into World War II, and then we start doing uh, these things become really important to us. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as we're talking about that, and I definitely want to lean into that aspect because it's one of the fascinating things about this book um, that really I was really drawn to is that massive gap. But and and so especially for like as me as as a marine who's been on deployments and was so you know as a combat arms MOS carrying marine uh which really during this long war was really just a, a badge of war i think every marine was at this point um during long war had experienced enemy contact or had been in an environment of uh, a highly stressful kinetic and so we all sort of were you know, uh, forged in fire that intelligence was absolutely critical. I mean, you don't leave the wire until you know what's going on. Like you, you're sitting in on the, the after action briefs of the previous patrol, you're sharing information, you're talking to the locals, you're, you're definitely sharing information with your uh, host nation partners. You're trying to understand cultural settings, historical, all of these things that we just take for granted is how you do how you conduct yourself during war and this is the standard operating procedure that was not the i mean that is a fairly recent phenomenon so i guess the question really long-winded at this point is once we drop this veneer that this was something that just we've always done in fighting wars what made you then want to attack that topic but with such sort of like a Herculean endeavor, like hey, let's look at it through the lens of World War Two. Well, well, there's you know, one. There, there was the pandemic, and and this was a perfect pandemic project in some ways. <laughs> yeah. I'd done a lot of the research, but if you're going to be locked up, uh, you know, and you lo you love to read and write as I do, um, this was a a um, you know I I tried to put the bring the various threads together. Uh, one there's a there's hundreds of books about World War II intelligence. There's thousands of books about World War II, but almost none of the books about intelligence in World War II looks at more than one kind of intelligence. Mm. So it's it's as if you only you only get the take from Radio Battalion, if that's what we still call it. Yes. But you don't you don't go over and and look at the aerial reconnaissance. So what I've I've tried to do here is pull these things together and say, hey, this group of guys was doing that, that group of guys was doing this, this is how they got together or they didn't get together. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a great example that I think is uh, fitting right here is uh, when the Marine Corps started to go out to into the Pacific, like, like Guadalcanal, um, there was 
almost no in no intelligence. I mean, w they were reduced to like like road maps. If they could get a road right, map, right. if you could get, I mean, there's not too many roads in Guadalcanal. Right, right, so right. so I mean, you would you would look to like what planters had you know uh, sketched about mm -hmm. trails and whatnot, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, uh, who was uh, General Holcomb at the time, General Holcomb is one of the leaders saying. Hey, we got to do better. We can't. Right. We can't go in blind to the next island. And uh, so it, this is kind of a, a a story that I don't think has been told very much. And uh, he's he's kind of the guy who's driving the first fusion center out in the Pacific. Yeah, and I it, thought that was really I, fascinating, I, especially when we look at today as we're talking about doing this distributed operations over you know various island chains and you know mm -hmm. doing stand in forces and expedition expedition advanced basing like it's it, as you say all the time like history may not repeat itself but it definitely rhymes it sure does yeah. and so i'm just looking at your analysis of that and like you said this fusion center and sort of this forward thinking i mean it's like what what year is this <laughs> yeah. you know they general holcomb is an interesting guy general holcomb uh it was a high school graduate, period. And then he went off to, you know, he, he was in the Marine Corps well before World War One, and uh, he never, you know, he didn't, he didn't go to all these fancy schools and, and uh, you know, he, he just had this, this uh, body of common sense uh, refined by experience. Uh, and he was, so there's, a, there's another part about, in the book about General Holcomb where, where it looks like, uh, OSS, what becomes OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is kind of the predecessor of CIA, and they're looking for they're looking for an institutional home, and they look at the Marine Corps. You know, they're sitting up in Washington, and they look down here in Quantico, and they go, "Hey, uh, how about how about we just sort of co-opt the part of the Marine Corps?" And General Holcomb was really upset about that, uh, but lucky for him, he he had a direct line to the president, and he said, "Hey, no, thank you." Uh, and the president heard him, and then they got along fine after yeah. after that was off the table, and they, there was a good cooperation between OSS and the Marine Corps later on in the war. Yeah, that was such a fascinating piece. I thought, you know, I mean, here's uh, William uh, Donovan, who's got really the template for what we would now call MARSOC. Right. But at the same time, he butts heads so much with the commandant. <laughs> That, I mean, and, and, and please elaborate or correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but my reading on this was is that because of that friction, the commandant goes ahead and, and establishes a raider battalion yeah, basically, yeah, just to yeah. get ahead <laughs> of the whole thing right? and then yeah. leaves Donovan sort of swinging right. we, in the we don't, wind. We don't, we don't want this, and, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a story that you can uh, go further with because uh, the president's son, James Roosevelt, is a USMCR officer. And uh, he becomes one of Donovan's aides, <laughs> so it's like like the Marine Corps is kind of kind of keeping track on. Yeah. And and that's an interesting sidebar right there is is uh, uh, young Roosevelt, uh, who became who uh, I believe he started out as a lieutenant colonel, and uh, in the reserve must, nice. <laughs> must be nice. But he says to his credit, he says, you know, this is wrong, and he has he ha he reverts to a lower grade and then works his way back up. Uh, and he actually goes and fights. He's he's got a great combat record in the Pacific, um, in the in the raids they make in and what's the other island? Uh, there's there's two islands that get raided early on, uh, you know. And he's out there in the thick of things. He he doesn't he doesn't say, look, I'm the president's yeah. son. I'm, i I need to be you know protected. And, and the system, the Marine Corps doesn't say that to him either. Uh, so um, let him. I, I think all four. Roosevelt sons were in some branch of the service. He was in the Marine Corps. Uh, there was one in the Navy, and I think one in the Army, and one in the Army Air Force. That's awesome. So, what was I guess the difference between Donovan's envisionment of what he wanted, and then essentially how it became to Marine Raiders? Was there were they employed similarly as as his design, or was it um, was it employed like in in a different direction? Uh, so Donovan. Donovan had a lot of ideas. So Donovan, <laughs> Donovan's, Donovan's like, let's, let's, let's. I mean, about the first hundred pages right, of right, your book yeah. is exploring. Well, I'm an ideas guy. Yeah, yeah. So ideas guy. Let's see. But Don what Donovan really likes um, of all the 
ideas that he has is is the Marsoc kind of idea. So raiders, uh, commandos, go out there and do stuff. And uh, he all he offers to the president early on, like after Pearl Harbor, he says, "I'll do this." So he's he's 57, 58 years <laughs> old. Not I'm not against older men right. doing things, mind you, but uh, the president says. Appreciate your zeal. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> call General Marshall. General Marshall says the same thing. You know, we really, this is great, but um, this is not what we're looking for. So uh, to answer your question, there's a part of OSS that's kind of like MARSOC, and then OSS, as it grows, has these other parts that are, a, it's basically three parts, uh, research and analysis, uh, special ops and uh, secret intelligence. So, those are the case officers and the the people going out there gathering secrets, breaking into safes and whatnot. So, so I, I would say roughly one third of OSS is is the is the raider type mission, and then the other two are um, different but overlapping. Donovan's idea was that they would all kind of it would it. Would, he would he would be a fusion center, right? Or OSS <laughs> would be a fusion right. center, and and kind of do this all. The parts would would collaborate with each other, and that then leads to. And, and I'm jumping way ahead at this point, but this leads into our post VJ VJ day issues of now trying to coalesce all of these upstarts and good ideas and uh, ad hoc sort of cult of personalities uh, into a single then organization to then you know get get the nation ready for the the cold war right so so there's there's two so there's there's two big blue arrows and and one of them is just kind of it consistently it's like it's almost like background noise um, and it just keeps it's the hum that you can't quite hear but you know is there, and that's communications intelligence, signals, the code breakers, um, the amazing things that are done in World War II on this side and in in the United States and in Great Britain. And so when the war ends, those guys, I mean, it's like they've already, it's like they've already hardened their positions. It's yeah. like they've already put the sentries and the and the and the fence line out, and they you know they know where they're going to fire the FPF and, <laughs> yeah. and, and and all that. And then uh, the U.S. realizes, but that's not enough. So you can't just rely on one uh, discipline. You need what OSS is offering. And there's this big fight in Washington in uh, the fall of 1945. Uh, and some of the participants say it's one of the bitterest bureaucratic fights they've ever been in. And I don't know exactly why, but maybe it's because there's no external enemy anymore or that mm. the Japanese and the, the, the Germans have surrendered so you can fight each other even more <laughs> uh, more bitterly. Uh, so they kind of they kind of uh, come to a, 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 an agreement that uh, eventually, uh, turns into what we see uh, here even today. You have the director of national intelligence. You have CIA. You have, I think we, I think uh, the count now is eighteen. Yeah, DIA, eight, NSA, eighteen NSA. intel organizations with with an umbrella uh, of a sort uh, at at the end. So this starts, and that's that's you know if you ask me why people should read the book, that's one of the reasons. If you want to understand what's going on today. Uh, you better start at the beginning and take a look at, at how hard it was for the U.S. government to to kind of put this together. If you compare us to the British, so the British the British have been running an empire yeah, right, right. for <laughs> hundreds of years, yeah. and they you know th these these various organizations kind of grow up naturally. Mm -hmm, so it's something mm -hmm. that you if you're a, if if you're a, a, an officer or a, a, a bureaucrat or a civil servant. You know, this this sort of stuff uh, grows up uh, organically, as it were. Uh, whereas in the United States, it's kind of like, wow, we need this. How are we going to do it? So it's it's that's one of the reasons it's more difficult is because you have to someone's handing you a, a, a blank yellow pad and say, okay, come up with an intel organization. Whereas the British guy already has, like, right. you know, there's those people running the uh, the, the Raj or other people running. 
um, you know, you name it. Um, well, they had end beds in almost sure. every place. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, they, yeah. Well, I, I could go down another rabbit hole. They, they, <laughs> Let's they, do they, it. They, Let's they have, they have the British. The British ha- have always had a different approach to intelligence uh, than the Americans, and I think the the British approach has always been well. Let's kind of use the resources that we have, uh, as opposed to you know creating new mm. bodies, and and that that goes for that goes whether you're looking at at actual spies, you know, or or or, or the um, or the government bodies that run spies. But it's kind of like, well, you know, there's British expats all over the world. Right, right. Let's use them. You mm-hmm. know, you don't you don't have to go out and create like a pay grade and a and a you know write some write some regs. Just call them and ask them what's going on. Yeah. You know, and yeah. uh, so it's it's different. We we're more. We're more formal. All, we always have been. It's like you got to create an MOS. You got to you got to staff it. I'm I'm not against staffing and whatnot. I'm just trying to explain why it seems to be more difficult in the United States to do things than it is in a yeah. in an older country like Great Britain. So I guess to rewind the clock, then and, and so there's this massive gap in intelligence, or at least in collections, or even I guess even in the the drive to need intelligence. Most, it seems to me that even amongst the military leaders from the time it's after the Revolutionary War up until World War One, saw sort of intelligence as a nice to have, not really something I need to spend a lot of time. Can you talk that's, some of uh, that? Sure, that's great. So, so I joined the Marine Corps in 1975, and I said, uh, so I went, came down here to o- o- OCS. Uh, went up the hill to TBS, and uh, so you know, Second Lieutenant Reynolds says, "Well, well, what about Marine Corps intel?" And it was kind of like, "Son, <laughs> you don't understand how the Marine Corps works. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be an intel officer, especially not at the beginning. You need to go into combat arms like everybody else, and then maybe, maybe way down the road, you can join the limited duty officers oh, gasp, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are doing." Uh, Intel. So I'm I'm glad to. Uh, my understanding is the Marine Corps has come a long way from that. But that that is uh, that is kind of the way we were in World War II. I think it's even clearer in the Navy, where you know the only thing that counts is going to sea, uh, and uh, commanding a ship in combat. And you see you see uh, two of the the principal characters in here. Uh, one's Joe Rochford, and the other's Edwin Layton. And they are major players in naval intelligence in the Pacific. What do they want to do? Go to sea and command destroyers. <laughs> you know? And and Leighton is in Pearl Harbor uh, from uh, December, at least December 1941, until the end of the war. He's irreplaceable. He speaks Japanese. Uh, he understands ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence. He understands the assets at Pearl Harbor, and you, you know he can he can make input that will win battles. Uh, you know, and 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 that's what Nimitz, Admiral Nimitz, says to him: uh, "You are too valuable to go to sea and fight at the O5 level." Because if it wasn't for naval intelligence. Well, Wake Island would have been completely decimated, uh, uh, or Midway. Uh, uh, Midway, yeah. yeah Midway. And so that's a yeah. story I like to tell in here. Yeah. Uh, Rochford is is Leighton's friend. Uh, he's an unusual guy. He uh, started out enlisted. Uh, he never finished high school, uh, <laughs> and, and he learned Japanese. Uh, he's good at SIGINT. He's not a great code breaker, but he, you know, he's got a he's got a feel for it. Uh, and then he's he he does this. They do kind of a traffic analysis to figure out where the Japanese are, uh, you know. And he's got this un- absolutely—you couldn't write an MOS description for him, right, or for <laughs> his job. He just has this amazing basket of skills, and he, uh, more than anybody else. So I, I believe at that time he's an 05. He may have been an 06, and, and he he says, "Hey, they're going to be—they're going towards Midway. They're going to be here at this time." Yeah, and um, you know it's just a. It, 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 so he's he's one of the heroes of the book, um, but to to go back to where I started this, um, you know, this sidebar, he wants to go to yeah, sea, yeah, yeah. and uh, so he's he's kind of a, and he keeps trying to go to sea, and eventually the the uh, you know the as as the war progresses, uh, 
they he winds up as the captain of a floating dry dock. <laughs> so with and, and, and but he's a he's got this navy part of his soul says, "Hey, I, at least I'm on a ship." Yeah. Um, when it, you know the 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 only the reasonable thing would have been to use him in ever more responsible intel categories. Yeah. Well, it seems like it'd be easy to sort of put him, you know, this uh, mindset or this military culture at the time into a box of like, well, it's just professional aspiration. But I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, from the thirty-five thousand foot very uninformed view of this um, from my standpoint is is that when you look at the wars were fought post-revolutionary war and then obviously pre-20th century it was all on our home turf could that be a, a huh. reason why like, there was just wasn't this intellectual curiosity to have to really work to understand the enemy because we kind of uh, sort of knew them already that's that's a good uh, so you know, I, I'll agree with you uh, up until World War One, right? So, so Spanish-American like, War maybe a little bit, maybe. still, nah. But it, you know, but World War One is 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 the first time you really got to get outside outside your comfort zone to fight. Um, but that's that that helps explain it. I mean, the the Brits can't the Brits can't run the empire unless they understand what mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. uh, what's going on in, in, in New Delhi. And actually kind of one of the interesting things about the, so the Brits have offices here in, in World War I and World War II, and, and they, it, you know, a shocking amount by American standards of independence, shocking in the sense that, you know, these are supposed to be our friends, and, right. and they, they're doing what yeah. in New York? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things they're doing is they're keeping an eye on, on Irish and uh, Indian revolutionaries. So they figure... Uh, you know, New York's New York's got everything, They're right? Coming in, everything, yeah, coming and they, in. and they figure, you know, you put a man in New York, uh, and you figure out a way to listen to what the chatter is mm -hmm. in those communities. And we, I, I think you're right. We never had a, we never had that drive to know what was going on in Havana or, or Paris or whatever. It was, it was really something that that um, we limited our focus. Let me yeah, put it that way. yeah. To what extent also was the fact that it uh, like the intelligence agencies sort of stuck around after World War II was because it's driven by the fact that the, the the Soviet threat, where it seems like in all these other conflicts we talked about, it seemed like people thought this was pretty much cut and dry and done with. But after World War II, it seemed like people still had in the back of their minds there could be something else coming down the road pretty soon. A absolutely. So, um, yeah, so so we, we, we like – we Americans, and that, that includes me. We, mm. you know, we like we like things that come to an end, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, we've done that. <laughs> so now we can move on, and, and that's sort of what happened. And of course, wars wars never wars don't end neatly. We know that now. But but uh, in 1945, the so they the the there's an idea that the threat might be Soviets. But at, at least in, in in my book, uh, which ends in uh, 1946, um, the the thing that they do know is there is now the atomic weapon. There are now atomic weapons, and you better know who's got atomic weapons and if they're going to use them. So you put that together with Pearl Harbor, right? The surprise attack at Pearl Harbor that uh, American intelligence did not predict, and then uh, you have people like Admiral Leahy. Uh, who's who's quite a character in his in his own unusual way. Um, he wears his uniform on Liberty. Goes there's a great <laughs> pic, there's a great picture of him going fishing in the Caribbean, and he's wearing uh, his black tie and his uniform and his five stars. Um, but Admiral Leahy says now the thing we have to be able to prevent is an atomic Pearl Harbor. So that's driving it, and then, then very soon after that comes the, hey, you know, who's, who, who, who might want to attack us uh, with atomic weapons? A surprise attack, and of course, it's the it's the Soviets. What, um, just thinking to this sort of interwar period, I, I, I think probably something that doesn't resonate with our modern sensibilities is the idea that. People truly felt that World War One was the war to end all wars. Correct. Um, and so then you look at like, well, then how the hell, after what had just happened in Europe, did we 
get caught with our pants down so badly in 1941. Can you maybe talk some of that, those interwar periods and why we just, I mean, was it, was it xenophobia that we just didn't, because there's so many Japanese that had trained here, studied here. I mean, when you look at the personalities, there were so many American officers who knew Japanese officers and sort of their, they had foreseen their imperial ambitions. So w- what was it about our lack of intellectual curiosity or just the, the lack of intelligence infrastructure that we just could not foresee being attacked so there's, in Pearl there's Harbor? Two, there's Great question. So a couple, three ways to answer it. Uh, One is that what you have, so you got these guys, they're they're working in uh, temporary buildings near the Washington Monument. They were World War I tempos. Uh, They they were actually, uh, they they weren't wooden, they were concrete. They looked permanent, but they were called tempos. And they were really not, they, they were basic office buildings. And you got the Army and Navy code breakers working there. And, uh, you know, basically with yellow pads, these guys break the Japanese right. diplomatic code. Yeah, I mean, yellow. I mean, just they just sit there all day. That's what, that's what you do in, in, in that job in, in the 1930s. You, you, get, uh, you get intercepts, and you look at, at numbers or letters uh, on a piece of paper, and you're looking for patterns. And mm-hmm. you do that year in and year out. And, and somebody who's really good at it eventually goes, maybe after months of looking at the same series of messages goes, hey, wait, this has got to mean that. And then you, you know, then you start pulling right, on the threads. Right. So you've got that happening, but nobody's really analyzing it. So what do you do when you break a whole Japanese message? You copy it, you carry it to somebody like the president. Does the president have the time to go? Right. And, you know, if, if it's a long message, does he have the time to parse through it and, and say, hey, um, you know, why why is the why are the Japanese calling their merchant ships home? You know, why mm. are they pulling the money out of uh, banks in New York? Uh, why have they sent all the women and children back to Yokohama? Uh, you know, nobody is analyzing it, so mm. it's just it's just the raw intelligence um, circulating through Washington, and the so that's that's one way of answering your question. The other is um, the the our. American mindset was such that uh, we didn't think the Japanese could do it. Uh, Admiral uh, Kimmel, who's not a bad guy, uh, Admiral Kimmel says in pretty colorful language, yeah, he, yeah, uh, I just didn't think they had it in them. Yeah. I didn't think they were smart enough and, and competent enough to do this. Uh, so those are, those are two ways of, 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 say, of, of explaining why, um, you know, we were caught in the Pacific. And, and the third reason is, um, you know, what what's President Roosevelt really care about? Europe. Mm. He, you know, the, okay, stuff's going to happen in the Pacific and we'll have to deal with it. But what we really care about is, uh, you know, the, right. the, the, the French falling. The French. Yeah. The, I mean, that, that's huge. I mean, that's that's so that's. Where you the have a book picture starts. in the book of the uh, Nazis coming coming down. The, yeah. The oh Sean, the, yeah. The the, the Champs Elysees. Uh, not the Champs Elysees. Uh, well, it is well, the Champs Elysees. The Arc de yeah. and then the Champs Elysees down yeah. there. Um, and there's a there's a uh, interesting thing when they when they um, uh, so it's a circle right and the the uh, so it's a war memorial. And it, it's got an eternal flame under the under the arch, uh, and it's the, their tomb of the unknowns, mm-hmm. right? And so when these Germans come around, there's still a little bit of chivalry left in the German army. So when they pass the flame, they go into the goose step as a as a mark of respect, mm. and then they then they once again start. But the 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 the, the reason I, I I mention all this is this says to the world and especially to the United States. Uh, hey, things are changing. Uh, yeah. You know, when you when you lose Paris, these are the guys with the big European army. The yeah. British have the navy, and a good enough army, but it's nowhere near comparable in size to the the uh, the French army. And when the when France goes, then the almost, like without a shot, psych, fired, psych, yeah, right? it's like, well, a, a, a few, but uh, and so one of the one of the uh, one of the guys who's he's 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 not uh, he's not mentioned in this book, but one of the guys who. Who does? Uh, who who is fighting hard? Is uh, a man named Pete Ortiz, and Pete Ortiz was in the French Foreign Legion, 
um, the Marine Corps and OSS. Uh, Sounds so, about right. So, uh, <laughs> <the resume>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Pete's one of the guys who goes and, and fights in 1940, comes back here, joins the Marine Corps. Nobody, he's like, he's like in his 30s, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody's sure what to make of him. And so he tries to join the other services and... And they go like, hey, geez, you know, you're kind of old for this. Uh, so, so he he goes to the Marine Corps recruiter. He says, I want to enlist. And the and the Marine Corps recruiter says, okay, you know. And they send him to Paris Island. And then somebody looks at his ribbons. He's already got like two or three rows <laughs> from the French Foreign Legion. And from that, uh, it gets up to headquarters, Marine Corps. And the guy who speaks French uh, and has all these Common special experience. ops ribbons. <laughs> Uh, why don't we give them to OSS? And OSS puts them in France, so back to, back to the MARSOC kind of yeah. uh, operation we were talking about earlier. Well, that's a good gateway into uh, my next question, and that is, so once we've sort of gotten through the initial nosebleed, the punch to the face, <laughs> our eyes water up, we're bleeding out, like I can't just give up the fight. Now we start to do the real work, um, and there's we, we're sending teams Everywhere. I mean, uh, Philippines, uh, places in Europe where we're in uh, Switzerland, um, you know, we're working with uh, uh, the, the Nordic countries. Um, what, what is that process like? And I know you, you talk about it extensively in the book, but I mean, these are like these are real players, but there's not much of a charter. Like for so what it is that they're supposed to be doing. There's, right? there's, um, so we, I think we talked a little bit about Donovan and how he was spinning off ideas the whole time. And that's part of what's going on here is, uh, you know, somebody has an idea. Why don't you send somebody over there? And, and uh, see they know a guy who knows yeah, a guy. Yeah. And so, so Donovan's, Donovan's vision is you send people out and they will make good trouble, right? Uh, a good example is uh, General Stilwell, who's the, the uh, CG and in China uh, for much of the war. And it's a strange command. He's, he's kind of part of the Nationalist Chinese right. Army, and uh, <laughs> all, he also has allied troops. And Donovan, Donovan uh, basically has a coffee with him in, when he's passing through Washington and say, hey, I, you know, I can send you some special ops guys. And, and Stillwell basically goes, yeah, yeah, that's fine, Bill. Okay, sure. <laughs> and, and so like a few months later, this contingent shows up, and and uh, he knew he knows the guy is a, 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 a guy named Eifler, and Stillwell and Eifler knew each other from the old army. And he says, "What are you doing here?" And he says, "Well, I work for Donovan. Now you 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 asked for me." And Stillwell goes, "I did." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was in that coffee? <laughs> yeah. So so I mean, and, and it's totally understandable in a way because there's so much going on, mm -hmm. and you you know if you're a, if you're a CG um, or a, a, a senior official during the war there's like you're getting bombarded from all and you you don't have a mature staff that that kind of reduces um you know he, general here's what you need to know today yeah right uh so it's understandable um i think as the war goes on especially in europe you see a little more order coming in uh and that's because the oss technically works for the joint chiefs um and and then in europe uh Schaefe, um, Eisenhower's staff in Europe is a, eh, it's a pretty good staff. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they mm -hmm. th so you you see people going, well, okay, you 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 can go here, but I don't want you to to uh, make trouble until day X, or mm -hmm. or only look at that target. Uh, so yeah, you see you see, but the, but that, that, another you mentioned Switzerland. Switzerland's kind of like in the first category. Switzerland's kind of like, well, shouldn't we have somebody there? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and, uh, and Alan Dulles, who becomes a, a, an important post-war figure, uh, Alan Dulles kind of sneaks into Switzerland uh, on the last day of, of um, uh, before the borders closed. It's after the invasion of North Africa. And, uh, and, and then it's like, well, what do you do now, right? So you're here, you're in neutral Switzerland, you're surrounded, you got Nazi Germany, uh, on one border, you got occupied France, yes, and then you got fascist Italy <laughs> on the remaining border. And so now, what do you do? And he does a pretty good job of figuring out. Well, you know, you first of all, you want to you want to absorb the semi-secret information that you would get by being 
near the enemy, right? So like radios, newspapers, uh, legal travelers. And then people, people start showing up. It's like, well, uh, you know, I represent this group in Germany. Are you interested in hearing what we're doing? And at the end of the war, he's the, one of those people who shows up is like a, an SS general who's like the number two. He's a head of the SS in, um, uh, in Italy. And uh, so he's kind of the number two. There's like there's a armed forces guy, and then and so he's sort of like the the political arm or the police arm. It's such a complicated Nazi Germany is a bureaucratic mess. But <laughs> uh, he says, "Hey, look, I want to surrender," you know. And uh, Dulles says, uh, "Well, that's what I'm, that's why I'm here. I am the I am the guy that you can talk to secretly, and we can explore this." And so they do surrender a few days. Uh, before the general surrender and 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 uh, save a group of lives, uh, save a lot of lives. So, but if 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 there had been a more mature, I hope I don't know. I can always there's going to be somebody who's going to say, well, what about this? Uh, that didn't work. You know, 50 years later. But but um, you know, if you have a if you have a better if you have a a, a system that works a little better, you know, this guy shows up like in March and the war ends in May. You know. Somebody could have run with that ball more aggressively mm -hmm. and 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 made things happen. So, um, anyway, so I, I think that I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. That that we're you know the, you you've got these guys going all over the world. Some of it is sort of disciplined and some of it isn't. Uh, you know, and there's and there's some uh, there's some embarrassing some embarrassing mistakes or some sure and i guess flaps. yeah that's what i want to get into i'm a i'm a huge fan of dietrich bonhoeffer's story yeah, oh my I, I goodness i love everything yeah. about that and so i definitely want to i don't want to go too down too big of a rabbit hole because we'll be here all day because <laughs> i can talk it but um that's one of those things where it was our apparatus wasn't that mature there wasn't a ton of i don't know if trust is the right word on what was coming back from the field, but it seemed like from and even from the British standpoint, there's like, here's this Lutheran pastor who's been to the states, seems to have his finger on the pulse, but is also part of the German intelligence apparatus, and he's talking about assassinating the Führer. I don't think we can trust this guy, and that was seems like if our if we had a more a firmer foundation, we would have seen that not all Nazis are painted with the same brush. Yeah. So I, I we have there's a character who's who's in my book who fits more or less the, the that category. I don't mention Bonhoeffer, but uh, there's the the overlapping part of the conspiracy against Hitler. Uh, so it's out of the uh, a lot of it's out of the German intelligence organization, the military intelligence, the Abwehr, and. and and we don't know what to make of <laughs> of uh, of these guys when they show up. Um, President Roosevelt is not the best consumer of intelligence. He tends to think that uh, you know you 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 can't make a difference. He he's uncomfortable saying, okay, these are the good Germans and those are the bad Germans. Uh, he just says, hey, you know, we got to win the war and then we'll sort it out. Um, but we don't. We're not comfortable making a a. We're not comfortable running with that ball either. With the, you know, I, c I can understand why why people might have been you know, reluctant to deal with the SS guy. Uh, right, right. Um, but here, here are people who are not in the SS and who are saying, "Hey, you can deal with us," and we're not really comfortable with that. Were the Brits any more comfortable? I don't know. They should have been because right. they, like, like I said earlier, they have, you know, centuries of of right. running empires overseas. Um, but. Uh, yeah, we in a better world there would have been there would have been like a, a an analytic group uh, in who followed Germany and and would have said hey you know there's this strain and that strain, um, and they're also worried about about dangles. They're also worried that that the Germans are trying to fool them in some way mm. and that this is some sophisticated operation, and we're not very good at pulling that apart and saying. Um, you know, this is this is real. That's not real. So I guess if we then fast forward, I guess look at modern context through that same sort of lens. It seems like we have the opposite problem, right? We have like oversaturation. <laughs> <laughs> so are we? Are we sort of? Are we just on the the different side of the same coin in this moment where it's we're inundated with stuff and we don't know what the hell to make well, out of all of it? Well, um, 
Yeah, I guess the it's, I, I can give a good Marine Corps answer, right? You want the when the Marine Corps works best, it's like Goldilocks and the porridge, not too much, not too <laughs> right. little, right? So and uh, and the Marine Corps has traditionally given money back to to Congress and said, hey, you know, you you gave us ten, but mm-hmm. we only needed eight. Uh, so. Yeah, American Intel, e- even in the war, I mean, starting in the war, in, in this war, we we don't, it's so hard for us to figure out how to grow to just the right size mm. and get just the right mix that we need. Um, I wish I had an answer. I mean, there's, no, that's there's, people, any, yeah. there's, there's people up in, up in uh, Washington on, on the Beltway who, you know, who, it's their job to figure out how, uh, how to, how to, you know, right size the organization, um, and we, you know, we see some of this in the in the book at the end of the war, and we, we, we just don't. It's just so hard for us to do. And the the other point I'd toss out was once you have a something, right? Once you create the, you know, the Ajax Investigative Commission or whatever, the hardest thing to do, <coughs> and it runs for a few years. The hardest thing to do is say, well, we don't need that capability anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, w- we as a, I don't know, is, is it us? Is it a modern society or whatever? Once you have an Intel organization uh, for whatever, it's really hard to to downsize it or eliminate yeah. it. So you see this struggle. And no one was high fives like, all right, cool. We'll see yeah. you guys later. Right? <laughs> like, no, th- yeah, thanks for your... You don't. You don't see. You do see a lot of people want to go home after World War II. Um, they don't want to turn the lights but, on. But they don't want to. They, they don't want to say, "Well, we don't. We're, we're going to give the building back." Yeah, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to go on leave for a year or two. But but we want to hold on to the building and the files. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's hard. It's really. I guess a, a a good way to sum it up is it's really hard to right size intelligence. Yeah. No, I think the uh, Goldilocks uh, analogy is very yeah. fitting. <laughs> Um, well, sir, I really, really appreciate your generosity and you oh, sitting down to talk this thing. One thing, I, one aspect of the book, and and, and just for note, uh, this is coming out on the seventy fifth and the eve of the seventy fifth uh, anniversary pr- of the CIA, of CIA right? yeah, which is the eighteenth uh, of September. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. Um, so definitely for all our listeners, please go check out Need to Know. But one, speaking of the book. Um, as you mentioned, there's thousands of books written about World War II, and there's hundreds written about World War II intelligence. They all sort of seem to take a, a very nuanced niche, like, hey, here it was in Hungary, or here right. it was in Philippines, or, you know, yeah. you take, a, obviously, a very broad look at both theaters and how they uh, were in conversation with each other, but... Other than having a computer that has a word processor, <laughs> um, do you feel like what makes you sort of uniquely suited to write a book like this? Do you feel like it was your experiences in uniform and then as an operations officer of the CIA that gave you a lens that other authors who maybe are uh, you're creating hypotheses and, and, and interrogating their own questions in a more sanitized academic environment that maybe they don't have the same sort of keen eye that you do for like looking at linkages, following breadcrumbs, you know, seeing the things that aren't necessarily there, pulling threads. I, 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 do you feel like you're well, more sort of uniquely suited to write a book like this? Uh, I mean, I, I like all the things you said. I could, <laughs> I could, I could jump on that and, and, and say, um, Sure. Uh, the, uh, um, the answer is all, yes, sir. All the, the answer is yes, <laughs> all of the above. Um, so one here, here's one way of uh, answering the question. So there are there are a lot of books about um, the origins of CIA, and there are books about things that don't work in intelligence. And yeah, you know what what sells what sells a book? Uh, you know, is it is it like everything worked right? And um, you know the if you're writing about aviation, right? Uh, you know they they invented this, and the passengers were more comfortable, and the planes <laughs> went further. Or is it the book about hey, look, this caused the plane to crash? You know there was mm-hmm. this, there there were these. Um, so what where I'm going with this is um, intelligence is a tool, uh, and and you can use it well or not, mm. right? You can keep it, you can maintain it, you can fine tune it, 
and and so what I'm what my experience I I guess the, the I would make the argument that my experience is that I can look at a t at these tools and go hey you know uh, here's the tool here's how to use it and I you know and, and this book kind of makes some suggestions on 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 how these things should work so yes my this is kind of like this is this could have been my memoirs um <laughs> you know this, this, this is like all my interests in one one um between two covers and i'm i'm saying like here's here's how these parts can come together and work well uh so yeah i think and i i, I also I, I also have to add that i learned a lot while i was doing this because you know you 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 wind up um, these days historians um, a lot myself included have wound up specializing so mm. you become the you become the world the world's expert on you know like me for instance so uh, humanitarian ops in the Caribbean in the 1980s okay great yeah, good job Nick um, <laughs> but but this one made me look at the bigger picture. And I had to go learn about things that I didn't know that much about, especially communications intelligence, signals intelligence in World War II. Um, you know, what a ride, what a story. I mean, they just, uh, you know, amazing dedication uh, by members of the greatest generation who didn't, um, what's the, we didn't really treat them, we didn't, we didn't always appreciate right, them. Right, right. You know, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it. But, yeah. but you know, to, to um, you know, and there are, there's some people who who are broken by the war, who who might as well they weren't in combat, but they might as well have been in combat because their lives are are you know it's it's like it's a form of PTSD if you sure. got a if, if you got to break codes and and it's it's you know it's not flowing right there's lives enormous the pressure lives yeah. are on the line, so um, yeah it's been a great experience for me to try and and pull this all together and then distill it in a a form that I hope is is readable and and gives the gives the uh, um, gives the person who picks up the book an, an idea of what you know where where the goalposts are right yeah. the field there and and who the players are on this field and and you know how they can play the game and and win and we did win right we yeah, did, that's we, right. did yeah, yeah. we won we won World War Two <laughs> uh, and it's thanks in in large part to these guys. So you describe this book as, as a crossover book, as a linking very different fields of intelligence. So after our dear listeners buy your book, read it, rate it positively on wherever they buy it, and then buy <laughs> multiple copies for their friends and family. Absolutely. Good right, job. Just time uh, for the holidays. Yeah. What else would you recommend uh, in that uh, uh, the historiography field that they read in addition to get a further understanding of this material? Boy, great, uh, great question. So um, I like the historians who... Um, who who are kind of trying to look at things, and take a new perspective. Uh, one of them's named Richard Frank, who's writing a uh, a series of books about um, the war in the Pacific, and and he's saying, hey, let's let's not just look at the usual players. Let's look at all these other some of, some of whom were were victims, like countries that were 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 victimized, and let's let's try and get a picture of the Pacific in in uh world war ii and and um so that's not to take away from you know the guy on the the, the marine on the beach or the the sailor risking his life or whatnot so i i like the 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 unusual the slightly unusual books that that come out and take a a a, a different point of view there's one about admiral Leahy. it's the second i believe it's the second most powerful man in the world and that's been around for uh, a few years um, not many, but but you know, be, people looked at he he didn't his his billet was kind of undefined. And it was very Roosevelt. Hey, Roosevelt says hey, he's go, a good guy. Go go <laughs> go start. You know, and, but he was basically the senior military officer in the United States Armed Forces during World War Two. And uh, how many people know who Admiral Leahy was? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so we created it's a little story here. We in in um, we created the five-star rank uh, to so that Ameri senior American officers could match, like the Europeans yeah. who were who were field marshals. And, and Roosevelt gets a list of like uh, like you know the the big names, you know MacArthur, Nimitz, Marshall, um, Eisenhower, 
And who does he put number one? Leahy. <laughs> no, so so those those are two books right there. Um, what else do I like? Um, I, I I like the I like the books that kind of look at cultural things or or people who are forgotten. I'm um, talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a, a really neat book out there uh, called uh, The Troubles, The Sum of All Our Troubles, The Frequent Troubles of Our Day, uh, something like that. And um, it's about an American woman who's married to one of these guys uh, in, in uh, Mildred Harnack. A- and uh, she's, so she gets caught up in this German resistance to Hitler and um, and she quits herself, you know. No, she's noble. Um, uh, you know, does she? Does her side win in 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 German society? No, she gets executed. But there there are these there are these books that are coming out that that um, you know have us look at a different mm-hmm. a, a different perspective um, on the war and the the people who fought. Um, Liza Mundy wrote a book called Code Girls. So, so like, uh, yeah, and I'm guilty of this too. So we, we, we assume you could you could get to be a, a, a senior historian of World War II, and you you would assume that all the all the women did was stay home and and Make cook bombs. meals. Yeah. No, oh well, some of them went to the factories, but the others, you know, they would they kept the home fires burning, so when the guys came home, everything would be fine. And and uh, Liza's book says, well, not so fast, you know. <laughs> there's there's uh, you know, and and I I mentioned this a little bit in here is is the number of women working in intelligence is just staggering you know where the where they go from from you know a handful to uh, hundreds or even thousands of people so i guess i would say look at the look at look at the participants that we kind of take for granted and, and and see what they were up to and then and look at look at some of the guys who are enlarging like like Richard Frank who are enlarging the the enlarging the playing field uh, asking us to look at at other places and also look look from the other side too right so we it, uh, i'm as guilty of this as anybody we we tend to every historian tends to write history from his or her own perspective right so you you write the american side um but what about what about the enemy didn't didn't he have a vote too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it, you know if you can go and look at what the um in, in my case, um, you know, if you could, if you can find what the Germans were up to, you know, if you can find a a memoir. So a book I just read, um, it's called Coltitz, and it's the it's the castle where they put the hard cases. The German army put the hard cases, the escapers in World War II, uh, and it's uh, it's just come out, and and he's saying, okay, so we 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 had all these escape stories. Of allied, you know, brave allied officers who never give up, and they just keep trying to escape from this castle, which is on a hill. It's like a, you know, it looks like Dracula should be in charge. <laughs> uh, and um, the guy says, "But, but wait, um, you know, what what was it like to be a German at this, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a German guard?" And 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 he he finds he's found the memoirs of uh, one of the German officers, and and. And tells part of the story from his point of view, and makes the point that well, you know, yeah, Hitler was the Hitler and Nazi Germany stood for all the wrong things, and and did horrible things, but that doesn't mean that every German mm-hmm. was, uh, a, as you said earlier, a, that every German had bought into this 100%. Uh, so there's a touching scene in that book where, where um, one of the British officers feels he has to escape. And the war is coming to an end, and he's tried and tried and tried, and he's going to make one final attempt to escape. And the Germans catch him, and he has decided his honor as an officer is such that he's got to escape or die trying. And the Germans said, please, Lieutenant Sinclair, this is over. Don't make me shoot you. Uh, mm. it's, it's, it's moving, really. I mean, yeah. it's, it's kind of the old, the, the old view of what it meant to to be a warrior and then the kind of like the in this case it's the germans are kind of the flexible the flexible yeah. w- saying hey you know this this is over why don't you live well i mean it, 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 going back <laughs> to your point about uh the nazis in paris is is that even 
with such a seemingly, I mean, just a rout of the French, they still paid their respects yeah. to their they, tomb of the unknown they soldier. Had, they had mixed in, yeah. you know, and when we recapture Paris, there's the there's this guy, uh, actually, it's, it's the same word, isn't it, Colt? It's, uh, uh, that's the name of the commander as well as the castle. Uh, and and uh, his his orders are to blow Paris up and leave a field of rubble, and he doesn't do that. Uh, and, uh, and and he's got a great line that which is uh, Paris. So the f the by this time Paris is is uh, there's an uprising in Paris, and mm -hmm. they're trying to chase the Germans out, and and people are going like, well, why don't you shoot these people, General? And <laughs> he says he says uh, Paris is like a beautiful woman. When she slaps you, you don't slap her back. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, nice. <laughs> well, sir, this has been really great. Um, please, for all of our listeners, go check out Need to Know, World War II and the Rise of American Intelligence by our esteemed guest, Thank you. Nicholas Reynolds. Uh, this is so great. Um, on the eve of the 75th anniversary right. of CIA, um, for all of those who are just, if you're interested in World War II history, uh, history of uh, American intelligence or just intelligence in general collections or even just in organizations, how organizations get stood up and how maybe sometimes they don't go away. <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But, sir, thank you so much for your oh, time. Oh, my pleasure. This Gentlemen, both of you, it's been a pleasure. All right, everyone, All right, have a good you. one. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.